I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Demby, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. We are finally rapidly winding down to the end of a presidential election cycle that has been so long and so incredibly punishing. Shireen, this campaign kicked off in earnest in January of 2019. Like, <laughs> the entire Democratic <laughs> field declared in January 2019. It's so hard to think about <sighs> January of this year, let alone January 2019. Damn. Yeah, no. The campaign has been going on forever. And like we're seeing across the country, so has the voting. Early in-person voting began yesterday. Some waiting hours to perform that civic duty. In some parts of Georgia, it already looks like election day. How long have you guys been out here so far? About four hours. The number of Americans taking advantage of early voting across the country. Millions of people mailing in their ballots and finding hours-long waits at the polls. ABC's More people than ever are voting by mail. In dozens of states, people have been casting ballots for weeks. And if you're going in person to stand in line to vote early, it might feel like it's taking weeks Mm -hmm. with lines at the polling centers that stretch for several blocks and last hours on end. Especially if you are not a white person. Yes. Georgia, for example, has emerged as one of the big battleground states in this year's election. And it's seen a huge uptick in new registered voters. And in the nine counties in Metro Atlanta, for example, four out of five new voters are not white. That's according to Georgia's Secretary of State. As Stephen Fowler wrote in a recent ProPublica article, black voters are more likely than white people to vote in person on Election Day. So are Latinos, by the way, and are more reluctant to vote by mail. Mm -hmm. I voted last week by mail and I was talking to my wife about whether we should, like, brave the dangers of the pandemic because, I don't know, reflexively, I'm like, is this, is this a trap? Oh, yeah. You know. I know what you mean. How we know they wasn't finna throw our ballots in the trash. I was, you know, like, yeah. are you sure we want to chance this? And there's a bunch of misinformation from the Trump campaign about the dangers of mail-in voting, which, of course, isn't true. Votes by mail where thousands of votes are gathered, and I'm not going to say which party does it, but thousands of votes are gathered, and they come in, and they're dumped in a location, and then all of a sudden you lose elections that you think you're going to win. But uh, we know our history, Shireen. Yes, we do. White people have found all sorts of shady ways to stymie black people's votes, to stymie Latino people's votes, or kick us off the voting rolls altogether for as long as we have had the franchise. This is right. And the point of that misinformation is to make people scared about voting. But it's not just misinformation. Mm -hmm. Once again, look at these long wait times. They are not an accident. Counties and states across the country have shut down polling centers in predominantly black or Latino areas, which for a lot of people means having to choose between casting your ballot or being late to work or missing a day of work. Some lawyers and voting rights groups are fighting with counties and states over voter purges, which is, you know, when people are just kicked off the voter rolls. And all this matters so much because the demographics of this year's electorate are going to be a major factor, maybe the major factor in the outcome of the election in just a few days. For Biden to win the White House, he has to do better with Black and Latino turnout than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. The Republican Party, meanwhile, is banking Donald Trump's entire re-election bid on white voter turnout, particularly among white folks without college educations. But as you talked about in your Latino voters episode, Shereen, Mm -hmm. white people will make up a smaller and smaller part of the electorate each cycle. So for Trump to win, he basically has to... um, like squeeze more white toothpaste out of the tube. And helping him squeeze that toothpaste would be if a lot of voters of color just, you know, couldn't vote. <laughs> exactly. 
Carol Anderson, a historian at Emory University in Atlanta, is the author of the book One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And we talked to her back in 2018 during the midterms. Mm -hmm. So some of the things you're about to hear have changed since then. But the big picture stuff is all still very relevant. This is quite a title. One person, no vote. How voter suppression is destroying our democracy. It is the essence of what I saw happening with voter suppression, that we have a mantra in America that it's one person, one vote. I mean, that we say it. It Mm -hmm. just rolls off the tongue. But what is happening is that we have systematically undermined that doctrine and diluted the power of some people's votes to the point where democracy is gaining incredible illegitimacy, and it's via voter suppression. And voter suppression has deep, gnarly, old roots in this country. Professor Anderson starts her book in the past in the Magnolia State, Mississippi. The Confederates lost the war, and in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave Black men the right to vote. Now, Democrats ran the South back then. It was basically a one-party system. And let's just say, the Southern states were not happy about this new amendment to the Constitution. Yes, so the Southern Democrats were just incredibly powerful. Um, One of the key measures was what's called the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And with that plan, what Mississippi legislators had to figure out was how do we get around that doggone 15th Amendment that says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude? And how do we get around it and systematically deny black people the vote? And the Mississippi plan was the answer. Anderson writes that the Mississippi plan used things African-Americans had no control over against them. Things like poverty and illiteracy, results of slavery and massive inequality. Literacy in terms of being able to read uh, large sections of the Constitution and interpret it to the likings of the registrar. Poverty by having to pay a poll tax. Along with Election Day terrorism, let's be clear, that was also out there, where black folks who tried to register to vote, who tried to vote, could easily be killed and nothing would be done about it. And it wasn't just Mississippi that made voting difficult and dangerous. It was basically the entire South. But if you were white and you weren't so good at interpreting the Constitution or you were poor, not to worry. You were given an out a few years later with something called the Grandfather Clause. And it said that if your grandfather could vote before 1867, you too could vote. But who couldn't vote before then? Black people. In 1867, the radical Republicans pushed through the 1867 Reconstruction Act. The final phase of that act granted black men the right to vote. So only white men had the right to vote before 1867. And to make things even easier for white people to hoard the power of the vote in most of the South, Anderson says they were the only ones allowed to vote in the primary. Now, black folks could vote if they wanted to in the general election. But they couldn't vote in the primary because it's a one-party system. Whoever won that primary was going to be the one who was going to win the general election. So that primary was key. So making the white primary whites only really, again, significantly disfranchised African Americans. How did black voting look 
after having all of these deterrents oh put upon gosh. it? It plummeted. Only 3% of African-American adults were registered to vote in the South by hmm. 1940. 3%. And a majority of African-Americans lived in the South. Congress did pass legislation to try and deal with black voter disenfranchisement, the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Except it required litigation. So you had to sue an official for violating your right to vote. There was a trial. There was a verdict. There was an appeal. And years would go by. The legal process took forever. And in the Civil Rights Act, the onus was on you to prove that your right to vote was violated. By the time we got to 1960, three counties in Alabama had a total of five African-Americans registered to vote, although they had nearly 16,000 age-eligible African-Americans in the population. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. And we know something big happened in 1965. Lyndon Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act into law. Did that fix things? That was a massive game changer. It flipped the way that the U.S. did business on its head. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act made states in certain counties with a history of discrimination get the okay from the DOJ or a federal court before they could change their voting laws. These were those states that used poll taxes, literacy tests, and had fewer than 50 percent of voting age eligible adults registered to vote. They're often referred to as preclearance states. Mississippi, prior to the Voting Rights Act, had fewer than 10 percent of African-Americans registered to vote. So we're in the single digits in terms of black voter registration in Mississippi. By the time we get to like 1967 or 68, um, black voter registration is almost at 60 percent. And you have your first elected black official in Mississippi by 1967, which was the first one since Reconstruction. The Voting Rights Act was a game changer. Now let's fast forward 33 years to the 2000 election. George Bush, governor of Texas, will become the 43rd president of the United States. Florida Supreme Court has sided with the Gore campaign, ruling that recounts underway in three Florida counties must be included in the state. That the more democratic and black the population, the higher the rate of invalidated ballots. In other words... Mr. Vice President, there are gross violations of the Voting Rights Act from Florida. Uh, the and I object, not. and it is not signed by a senator. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled five to four to reverse a Florida Supreme Court ruling that it. I am honored, and I'm, I, I, I guess I better go write an inaugural speech. <laughs> Bush v. Gore, Florida, hanging chads, all kinds of drama and chaos. I believe the scholarly term is hot mess. This was bad in Florida. If you're old enough to remember it, that's an election you'll never forget. But Professor Anderson says something else was going down that year in the show me state, something you probably don't remember. There was another hot mess happening in St. Louis, Missouri, and the St. Louis Board of Election had purged nearly 50,000 voters from the rolls shortly before the election. 
and didn't tell folks that they had been purged off of the voter rolls. People go to vote and their names are nowhere on the rolls. And the poll workers don't have any documentation that these folks are who they say they are, that they were on the rolls before. There's nothing there that they were given. And so they're trying to call down to the Board of Elections and the lines are jammed. And this is a Tuesday, a work day, and people are jammed into the Board of Elections. By seven o'clock, the polls are getting ready to close and this stuff still hasn't been figured out. And so the Democrats sued to keep the polls open an additional three hours until 10 o'clock to give the people who had been illegally purged a chance to get it all fixed up so that they could go and vote. Well, the Republicans were like, oh, uh uh-uh, and immediately got another court to come in behind that judgment and shut the polls down by 745. And what the Republicans argued, particularly U.S. Senator Kit Bond, Christopher Kit Bond, was that keeping the polls open an additional three hours was an attempt by folks in St. Louis to steal this election. This was a case of massive, rampant voter fraud. Voter fraud. Who's to say we don't have voter fraud if nobody's really looked into it? And not have people that are not eligible to vote casting votes in our election. Leaders of this new effort say they want to make sure that elections are free from fraud. I think nothing could disenfranchise an eligible voter more than finding out that ineligible voters are voting. Professor Carol Anderson makes the case in her book, One Person, No Vote, that this is when the threat of voter fraud starts gaining serious traction, thanks in part to former Republican Senator Kit Bond from Missouri. He took that language of voter fraud into Congress, where Congress was beginning to craft the Help America Vote Act, which was to deal with that incredible debacle down in Florida. So the Help America Vote Act deals with having machines that, oh, I don't know, can actually count votes. A commission, a place where people can go whose rights have been violated so that they can lodge a, a complaint. And so the Help America Vote Act was dealing with that kind of reality. He added the lie of voter fraud into federal law and said the way that we can deal with voter fraud is by requiring IDs. Republicans say even a small amount of voter fraud can sway elections, like double voting, casting a ballot in more than one place. The Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank, has a database of over 1,100 cases of proven voter fraud, 1,100 in 18 years. But a majority of those cases are not the kind of double voting fraud voter ID laws are supposed to prevent. In 2014, The Washington Post did its own analysis and found only 31 credible cases of that type of voter impersonation. 31 cases over a 14-year period where more than a billion votes were cast. Studies do show that voter ID laws disproportionately affect Black and Latino voters. Texas, Mississippi, and Alabama all moved ahead with strict voter ID laws just 24 hours after a Supreme Court decision cleared the way for them to do so. The case, known as Shelby v. Holder, neutered Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, where certain states, pre-clearance states, had to get the all-clear from the federal government before changing their voting laws. Alabama was a pre-clearance state and had actually written its voter ID law in 2011, before the Voting Rights Act was gutted. 
that law passed, but Alabama didn't implement it because it knew that there was no way that it could get through a Department of Justice preclearance review. But after the Shelby County v. Holder decision, Alabama implemented this law. Public housing ID was not included on the list of acceptable government-issued photo ID. Alabama is a poor state. It ranks somewhere between 48th and 45th in the nation in terms of poverty. It has a sizable, impoverished uh, population, and that lives in public housing, 71% of whom are African American. You basically make the case in your book that it's a modern-day poll tax. It really is. I mean, so in Alabama, Alabama then shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties, making the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles 50 miles away. But if you don't drive, because you don't have a driver's license, and there isn't public transportation, then how are you supposed to go 50 miles away? So that's a 100-mile round trip. To get an ID, you've got to pay for it somehow, pay for the trip itself, and then pay for the ID. That's a poll tax. A few years ago, Alabama reversed some of those DMV closures after a federal investigation found they disproportionately affected Black residents. Today, 34 states have some type of voter ID requirement. Professor Anderson says it's not just voter ID laws suppressing the Black and Latino vote, though. Poll closures do, too. Polling stations close, and people might have to travel longer distances to vote. So between 2013 and 2016, three years, 868 polling stations had been closed in those preclearance states. And along with poll closures, Professor Anderson says we should also pay attention to voter roll purges. That's when registered voters get kicked off the rolls. NYU's Brennan Center for Justice found in a report published earlier this year that in those preclearance states that are no longer protected by the Voting Rights Act, voter purges have spiked. Now, all states are tasked with keeping their voter registration rolls accurate. This is an argument Republicans make often. They're just enforcing the law to keep elections fair. The National Voter Registration Act requires voter roll maintenance, getting dead people off the lists, folks who've moved out of state, that kind of thing. And the act allows states to maintain rolls the way they see fit, as long as they're not discriminating. In some states, though, you can also get kicked off if you haven't voted in a couple years and you fail to confirm your voter registration. It's been referred to as use it or lose it. You don't go to church every Sunday doesn't mean you lose your right to religion. Regardless, the Supreme Court upheld this kind of voter roll maintenance in a decision in 2018. In 2017, Georgia passed a voter maintenance law that requires an exact match between your name, the name that you have on your voter registration form, and all other government documents. An exact match. So no hyphens out of place, no maiden names, no old addresses, none of that kind of stuff. Right. So the person responsible for those tactics, by the way, was Georgia's then Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who was the Republican running for governor of Georgia at the time. He is now the governor of Georgia, and he is now the person overseeing the state of affairs in Georgia. Surprise. Where people are waiting in these long-ass lines. Not a coincidence. So we know you want more Carol Anderson. This was not enough Carol Anderson. And you're in luck. She recently stopped by the Throughline podcast to talk more about voter suppression. So um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And um, 
one of my neighbors, uh, part of the village that helped raise me. Mr. L grew up in Georgia and he knew I was working on this book and we were talking and he said, yeah, I remember when I had to take that literacy test down there in Georgia. And they asked me, how high is up? <laughs> how high is up? There is no answer except you can't vote. That's the answer. I mean, and this is in, you know, when you think about this, this is the 1940s. This is living memory. I mean, we like to treat this kind of disfranchisement as some kind of relic of the past. No, living memory. Um, in the 2018 election, um, I voted, I voted um, early, absentee or early, so that I could drive folk to and from the polls. Um, because here in Georgia, they had shut down over 200 polling places. And the majority of those in minority communities, minority and poor communities. So I wanted to be able to help. And um, one of the women that I drove, she was like 90. And we go to the polls and they're like, how you doing, miss? You know, and they name her, call, call her name. And she's like, I'm fine. And like, we got to see your ID. And she's trying to get with these 90-year-old fingers this ID out of her wallet when they know her. She's able to get it out and she votes and we get back in the car. And she's like, mm-hmm. I remember when I had to, to read something when I first tried to vote here in Georgia and they, they were asking me all these questions literacy test. And so this woman who had to come through Georgia's literacy test is now having to deal with Georgia's voter ID laws. With a powerful civil rights movement and a voting rights act in between those two moments. So we're talking about this right to vote, this power to vote. Um, part of what we understand in the ongoing battle to stop people from voting is the recognition of what that power means. It means being able to have a voice in the kinds of schools your children will have. It means having a voice in terms of the zoning laws that will determine whether a toxic waste dump is put near your house. It means having a say in the kinds of district attorneys that will wield the laws dealing with criminal justice. Uh, it means having a say. And that having a say is threatening. And, and, and at the same time, that having a say is foundational to the way that we understand the United States of America and democracy. That's the battle plane we're on. For African-Americans, we live on the plane of aspiration of what this nation could be, but we're also so aware of how fragile, how tenuous, 
progress is. And that's why we fight. And you can see how it would be easy to give in to despair. But what giving in to despair does is it emboldens and it empowers those who are determined to re-enslave us in multiple ways, to create a vast labor pool without rights, to make our access to the ballot box a privilege and not a right. For more of that conversation, please holler at our Play Cousins at ThruLon. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. You can follow Shireen at Radio Mirage. You can follow me at GD215. That's G-E-E-D-E-215. We want to hear your voting stories, y'all. Yes. Were you waiting long? What was the mood like in line? Did you vote by mail? Videos of dancing, please. Dancing in line videos. <laughs> Especially if you're in Philly. Hit us up at CodeSwitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. The original episode was produced by Kumari Devarajan and Sammy Yenigan and me, and it was edited by Leah Danella and Sammy. Alyssa Jean-Perry produced our update. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch family, Karen Grisby-Bates, L.A. Johnson, Natalie Escobar, and Steve Drummond. Alyssa Beheza is our intern. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. <laughs>